Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. I prefer uh, that you send the questions to me by email. It's super easy, and I will get them and throw them right into my queue. And we've got a number of questions to take up this week. But first... I need to say a few things. Thing number one, I really apologize for the aborted effort at a live stream today. Um, Just had internet issues and trouble, called Verizon, got it sorted out. And um, so there you go. Hopefully that won't be a problem for future live streams. But I am sorry for inconveniencing everybody with that sudden announcement. I said I was not going to do a live stream. And then I did try to do a live stream. And I'm just kind of all over the place sometimes. And I apologize. So... Uh, also, I wanted to put a plug in for something that you guys might have heard of over on Amy Scobie's channel. This has been being promoted. We talked about this on Friday in the live show. This is protestscientology.com. And I'm going to show you here on the screen a couple postcards that can be sent to elected representatives around the country or IRS officials automatically. All you got to do is go to protestscientology.com, use promo code CRITICAL, and you'll get a 10% discount, by the way. And that'll tell the guy who runs this whole outfit that I'm the one who sent you over there. And there is a little commission for me on that, which is very nice. But really, the whole point is to get these these postcards out there. Uh, the service will look up, based on your zip code or area, and this is for United States only, uh, this will look up who your elected representatives are, and you can fire those off. And I think it's a couple bucks or something, or you can even pay a little bit more and get a repeating set of postcards sent to these guys so they continually get the message. So anyway, check that out. It's all detailed on that site, and it's something I definitely endorse and would like to see you guys do because it's some real-world activity of something that we can do to make our voices heard out there. I think it's actually quite a broad idea. Um, Okay, so the other thing I wanted to say is I am, every few years, I do a little revamp uh, facelift on my my channel. I'm pretty happy with, um, you know, my, my imaging, I guess, as far as my banner or whatever, but I don't know. If there's things I could do that would either make the, the shows more interesting, more appealing, more more ed- entertaining for people, I am wide open for suggestions on that. There are people who randomly will, t- will call me out for my voice and say that they don't like my voice. That doesn't help me in any way because there's absolutely nothing I can do about my voice. So um, that's not the kind of uh, constructive criticism I'm looking for. But if you have pacing issues or th- suggestions I could be doing on a, of a technical nature or graphically or you know visually or branding-wise or anything else that you think might help, I am all ears. So um, you know the only thing is that I can't really change the nature of what I do. And that is one of the biggest problems I've had as a YouTube creator is that I am not a young person. I am not an energetic, alive, out there, confrontational, get in people's faces person. And I'm um, and I'm not particularly producing, you know, short form content for people to consume in five minutes and move on. 
I, I, my channel expects a little bit more investment from people in paying attention, listening to what's being said, getting educated from it. And that's the audience I want, of course, but I would like to, of course, grow that. So I'm always down for more feedback uh, in that direction. That all being said, uh, let's get on with your questions. Oscar Q. Zilch. Multiple ex-Sea Org members have said they got a lot of sleep, ate good food, and watched a great deal of television once they escaped. There is literature on sleep deprivation and dietary restrictions in cults, so we know it's a good thing when people can get adequate food and rest after escaping. But I was wondering if there has been clinical work on using television when exiting a cult. On an intuitive level, the use of television as a therapeutic tool makes perfect sense and seems far more effective than the intervention tactics from the 70s. I'm simply curious what cultic studies experts have to say about TV. Okay, thank you very much for this question. It's a good one. I've been sitting on it for a little while because I've just recently gotten access to the literature again, and I dived in there and looked into cultic recovery or trauma therapy and television, and not a lot there. I found a a couple things, but rather than get into um, quoting um, academic research, I went and looked also just in regular online searching and found a few articles about this that sort of communicate the science of it in easier ways, and so I'm going to quote from some of these. What you're looking at is um, television, of course, the you know use of images and sound and all of that, stories, narratives to uh, communicate ideas is both educational, entertaining, and um, sometimes informative and cathartic. In other words, it can help people, can help people in therapy, and this has been called cinema therapy. Uh, this is actually a word that's been that's been uh, coined out there. There have been several studies documenting the effectiveness of cinema therapy in helping people of various age groups resolve problems and cope with distinct situations or disorders. In a 2010 study, researchers used cinema therapy in six individual therapy sessions with three pre-adolescent age children whose parents were divorcing. Now, this is in regards to more general trauma-based approaches because I couldn't find too much that was specific to cults. And so I broadened my search to trauma and dealing with the effects of trauma. And this is the stuff that came up. And of course, you'll see right away how this would be immediately applicable to trauma from cult experiences, as well as trauma from other, you know, violence or domestic situations or something like that. Um, In addition to using questions and discussion based on the film, therapists use expressive techniques such as art, there's art therapy, creative writing, storytelling, and drama. All of these are possible uh, sources of therapy or therapeutic technique. In all cases, the films help the children identify and articulate emotions, promote sharing, and facilitate coping. According to the study abstract, through their expressive responses, children experienced catharsis and created therapeutically relevant metaphors. A 2005 study followed a group of 14 adopted children with special needs. The participants were assigned to an experimental group that involved structured and guided processing of videos, or, uh, or a control group with no processing before, during, or after the video. 
Results showed a statistically significant difference between the two groups, indicating the value of the guided process in helping to reduce impulsivity and impatience. So again, with therapeutic um, intervention, can television or use of video imagery or movies be helpful in healing or in growth? Yes, they can. Uh, and here are some of the um, reasons I listed here as far as like why this might help for ex-cult members because one, it's integrative. I've compared getting out of a cult or escaping from a cult and reacclimating to the big wide world the same as, as a similar process to moving to another country. You know, you're in a new culture, cult, culture, right? These words are related. And when you leave a cult, you're leaving a culture and you're entering another one, a, a bigger, larger one in the, in the case of the big wide world. So there's an integrative process uh, with watching television, watching movies. You're, you're getting a visual audio you know, model given to you of behavior, of language, of customs, of manners, of how, how people act and communicate with one another. Excuse me. There's a lot going on. And and your brain is now interpreting all of this new information and going, oh, I get to do this or I don't get to do this. It's different than how it was before. Just like if you move to another country, you would want to watch the local television, the local news, pick up on the local language and customs as quickly as you possibly can if you want to integrate into that society or culture more quickly. And that's how you could go about doing it. Very, very similar process. So integration would be a function that could be served by that. Um, it also provides models or examples of positive or good behavior. A lot of the cult uh, behavior or rules are damaging or destructive. They are not good for people. They teach bad habits, bad uh, boundary setting, things like that. You watch television, you watch movies, you get models of better behavior and how to act. Um, they help us make sense of inner experiences by giving form to what we feel inside. This is really, really good for people coming out of cults. And one reason why it can be so helpful or cathartic to watch documentaries or movies or television shows portraying life in other cult activities or other groups. And you can kind of see, oh, that's a way to describe or talk about or show how I'm feeling right now, even if it's a different group. You watch Wild Wild West as a former Scientologist, you're going to be identifying all kinds of things going on under this Osho guy that also happen in Scientology. Or same with, you know, Branch Davidians or with David, you know, the Koresh or with Jim Jones or the Moonies or other groups. Nexium, for example, all kinds of parallels. And it helps, um, you know, give voice to thoughts we're having that we don't know how to articulate. But there it is on screen. Um, it also helps rewrite neural pathways. This is how we learn and unlearn things. The brain's plasticity or ability to change itself is a, is a wonderful thing. And, and through the process of entertainment and emotional attachment and emotional investment in that entertainment, you can uh, rewrite your brain pathways faster to this new model versus the old cultic model. 
Um, also reworks language use and helps unstick the thought-stopping cliches and uh, loaded language that a cult will infuse in a person uh, and make them there through language itself. They will the cults can make a person think very specific ways and and avoid thinking about or not be able to think about other things. And so by being exposed to, uh, you know, these other shows, other, you know, television, et cetera, you get uh, different ways of using language. It, it kind of busts that up a little bit. And finally, um, some shows can simply be comforting and can provide what we might call an emotional supplement or an emotional vitamin, right? Uh, you know, how you can, you, you need good feelings, you need uh, comfort, you need to see good examples of caring, loving relationships, to see that the, such a things are even possible. And, um, or sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes Mel and I, you know, every now and again, we will just be so overwhelmed by bad news, bad reporting, crap going on in the world. We will just kick it on the couch and we will watch the dog channel or the cat channel, you know, and just sit there and, and just soak up the, the love and goodness from our little furry friends on TV. So it can even at that level can simply provide moments of emotional de-stress, you know, anxiety, de-stressing. And that sort of thing. Uh, there was a quote here from one of the articles that I will wrap up this answer with. Watching the psychodrama of others who are moving through events that mirror our own, even in some small ways or in symbolic ways, can be a powerful and healing way to use the power of TV and movies to support ourselves psychologically. So, um, so there's my answer to your question. Maybe... Um, I could have gone deeper in terms of citing specific papers or digging up the literature on this, but I thought a more general lay approach to answering this might be better uh, for anybody watching. So, uh, you know, turn on the TV, watch those movies. Uh, it's going to be fine, and sometimes they can actually be really helpful. So there you go. Vera Fox. What about generational trauma when it comes to cult experience? Is that a thing? It is a serious issue in the aftermath of domestic violence. All right. Thank you for this question, Vera. And absolutely, I'm going to say that generational trauma could be a either cause side or an effect side of a cultic experience. If you are raised in a cult, then, of course, you know, there could be the phenomena or experience of trauma being passed down from father, mother, parents, uh, family members to the younger versions and uh, the trauma that the cult infuses or creates uh, or trauma created by the practice of simply doing the cultic exercises or rituals or processes. Um, so, you know, can, and, and by generational trauma, I pulled up, uh, uh, just like on the last question, pulled up a few things on this one. Generational trauma is also known as intergenerational or transgenerational trauma, and it's a cycle of trauma that passes through families. That's, that's the definition of it. Generational trauma occurs through biological, environmental, psychological, and social means. All of those. Uh, so uh, it could be genetic, could be environmental, could be um, 
you know, psychological uh, abuse or trauma or uh, familial, right? Obviously, um, fam extended family as well. Uh, when we talk about generational trauma, we're not just talking about families, though. It can be social groups or social activities that or groups that are, that go beyond a family. And we'll go over a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. So, could you have generational trauma happening within a group of Scientologists or Moonies? Yes, you could. Absolutely, you could. Uh, for example, some evidence suggests that generational trauma can happen in the uterus. Uh, for example, a fetus being exposed to chemicals involved in maternal stress that impact future development. Okay, if an abused wife, a pregnant woman who is being physically abused or stressed out or uh, coercively controlled and placed under, you know, is having lots and lots of trauma responses while pregnant is going to have chemical processes that could affect the uh, fetus and could affect its out, you know, its growth or its uh, process, processes, biological processes before it's even born. Uh, you know, this is uh, not so dissimilar to how, uh, you know, you drink a lot or you smoke a lot or you do, you know, hard drugs as a pregnant woman and you could very, very adversely affect the baby. Well, uh, you know, uh, environmental trauma or stress that the mother experiences can also do that. There's also epi epigenetic changes, which are external changes, um, environmental type changes, uh, or shifts in a person's DNA due to traumatic experience uh, can also cause generational trauma. And here we might cite some examples of, say, black Americans or Holocaust survivors or uh, indigenous communities or cults. Any one of these groups, any, any, any of these types of groups or activities has uh, trauma connected with it, which is passed down to next generations or passed down to other contacts in those groups. And it, and it gender, you know, it goes from one to the next uh, through the families. So um, anyway, so I, I hope you kind of get the idea that, of course, any kind of group setting can create, you know, the, the, the cause-effect relationship of, you know, one person's trauma is fed on to another one and fed on to another one. Um, I'm not really sure, you know, in thinking about this in my own experience, I look at my parents and um, I see relationship trauma, of course, and that, you know, being passed on, we could say. But, um, but I don't know. I'm not going to stretch too much on this. I'm just talking about it in more general terms that, um, you know, as far as is this a thing or could this be a thing for uh, cult members or cultics, you know, people who experience this? Absolutely. Of course it could. And, uh, but I would say that it's, I, I would have a hard time making this a the definitive kind you know trauma that a person would be carrying around with them because in a cult experience of course every single individual all by themselves is going to experience psychological and often physical abuse sometimes sexual abuse um as a matter of course that's why we call them destructive cults is because they're destructive to each individual in them and i think that you'll probably find with cult experiences that that kind of sort of individual trauma to that person is going to be a bigger factor with them in their recovery or things they're going to have to deal with, PTSD, stuff like that, um, different from, you know, the effects of generational trauma they might experience. It's going to be part of the package, 
but I don't think we would call it like the whole thing or even most of what their problem is going to be. So um, that's what I can say about that. Doritos are health food. I did some objectives after watching your podcast on them by using my phone. Shortly after, I went on a cleaning and ordering frenzy of maximum proficiency and thoroughness with a sudden surge of energy. So I would say I found some benefit in doing objectives. I got my place really made sparkling and did a lot of things I was putting off. However, I found this to wane after I was done. I cannot help but think this is a bit like a form of self-hypnosis wearing off, brought about by the repetitive nature of the processes. Would you think that the problem is that it wears off and one needs more of it so one could then become an auditing junkie? And even if it does, could it not be argued that a person gained regardless? What an interesting question. Now, of course, during my live stream, talking about the objectives and quoting extensively from the objectives handbook, I kind of said... I'm really not doing this so people will go and do these objectives. I wasn't trying to teach them to you. And we really only glossed over the commands, not so much of the process and procedure. And I also want to point out that objective processes are not solo auditing. This is something that an auditor does to you as the preclear. This is how objectives are done. So you didn't really do objectives on yourself. You carried out some commands of some processes until you felt good, and then you cleaned up. And, you know, basically what you did is you engaged in a kind of exercise that released endorphins. And you got all energetic and hyped up, and that's great. And then you went off and, you know, in, in your inspired state, decided to clean up and get a bunch of stuff done. Been there, done that. Totally been in that kind of mood before. This is called the release of endorphins. Exercise can do this. Taking a walk can do this. Uh, lots of emotionally impactful activities can do this. We, we, are, we become inspired, you could say, or get a morale boost or a second wind. Lots and lots of different ways. Life produces this in us all the time. And so to say, well, I watched a live stream and did a few commands and I felt great and therefore objectives work. I'm like, okay, uh, you know, sure, so does exercise, so does eating, so does, you know, lots of other things that will produce that effect. But what you did was not objective processing. I want to be clear that it's a formal process where you're in an org or an auditing room and there's an auditor and he's writing stuff down and he's the one who executes the commands on you. And often... During objective processing, in fact, by design, it is meant to produce a state where you go into a trance or even fugue state where you are your consciousness level, your awareness level goes down. You become semi-conscious or even fully unconscious. I've watched people fall asleep during objectives or just pass right out. And the auditor's job is to continue running the process on the person through that where they snap around or wake up or come out of that state. And that's interpreted in Scientology as having run through or eliminated or erased charge, electrical charge that your body is, is walking around with. In the, and that's what creates the mental image pictures and, and bank 
related or reactive mind related masses that impinge on your body that cause you to act silly or stupid or dumb it are re-stimulated this is the terminology they use in Scientology as you get re-stimulated uh, by these past traumas that are car- that are that you're carrying around with you as energy deposits basically uh, and the objective processes are supposed to be releasing these or even sometimes waking up and releasing BTs, body thetans. Um, so that's the Scientology theory of what objective processes are doing is they're taking your thetan, you know, you, and sort of orienting you and snapping you around into present time by releasing your attention units from these energy deposits that you're carrying around in your body. And if you're going to tell me that objective processes work, then what you're telling me is everything, all that bullshit I just told you is all true. Because that's the theory of objective processes. I'm not making this up. This is what Hubbard made up. I'm just, I'm just telling you what he made up. Uh, and he made up energy deposits and reactive minds and mental image pictures and how this is how you're carrying around your past trauma. So objective processes do not work in that. They do not do any of those things because none of that's real. There are no body thetans. There are no energy deposits around your body that you're carrying around with you, like Jacob Marley's uh, chain of sin. You're not that. That's not the picture. That's not how the how reality is. Uh, that's L. Ron Hubbardism, and that's Scientology. So if you do a practice of you know looking around a room for a while or picking things up and oh yeah it's red and then picking. This, oh, it's black, you know, and noticing things in the room and picking them up and putting them down until you feel better. Great, wonderful, but don't interpret that as objective processing works. Very different things. I, I, I you know, I hope I'm being clear in, in how I'm describing this uh, because because um, it's just not. It's just not a true claim that, you know, you you sort of solo tested it on yourself with a phone and now objectives work. Now, all that being said, in your question, you asked, maybe this was a bit of a self-hypnosis thing and it waned afterwards. That's one interpretation that has some degree of validity to it. I would say um, more, I, I kind of, you know, flow more towards the, you know, sort of hormone exercise explanation for this. Uh, you know, you go out and exercise, you feel better, or you get going and you inspire yourself. You know, you listen to some good music, you get something going, and suddenly cleaning or organizing or getting things going is easier to do. I, I, I've had this happen to me so many times in my life with having it had nothing to do with objective processes that I will relate it to, you know, a much more common experience. But that all being said... What your point is about how it's a, how this processing can engage a kind of self-hypnosis that does wear off and people want more of it and go back and pay for that, yeah, that, that's true. That part is, uh, is correct. That is uh, an effect of Scientology auditing. I just don't think you did the objectives long enough or hard enough or were even able to as an individual. You need an auditor to, to keep running you through it to get that level of effect, okay, uh, if that makes sense, right? Like you got to run, objectives in Scientology are not run for a few minutes 
or even an hour or two. They are run and run and run and run. You're going to be on these processes for hundreds of hours, hundreds. So that's generally the objective's experience in Scientology is that any one process could be run 5, 10, 15 hours, and you have a whole battery of these objectives to do. So... um, so that's why I say in, in Scientology, in, in talking about how they're used in Scientology, they're used much more extensively. They're much, you know, it's really hardcore practice. And so the states of mind or the, the, the trance state or the self-hypnosis state, right, is much more serious. It's much deeper uh, than what you're going to be able to produce in yourself trying to do it on yourself. Because if you keep running the process on yourself... I don't know, maybe I think this is obvious. Let me spell it out. If you keep running it on yourself to the point that you go unconscious or fall asleep, then obviously you're not going to keep running it on yourself. You see what I mean? And that's the place you go in Scientology, and then you have to keep going past that. So so you're not going to be able to produce that in yourself, right? And I'm not saying that every single time somebody gets run on objectives, they fall asleep or go unconscious. But they do tend to have these like deep moments in the session where they're, they're out of it, totally out of it. And it's common. That happens all the time. So maybe in a way I am saying it, hey, it is most, it, it does happen most or all of the time. So actually, yeah, maybe I should describe it that way. Because if it doesn't, then the auditor and the case supervisor are going to think you're not running them deeply enough. You're not running them hard enough. And they're going to try to keep finding objective processes to run on you that will push you down like that and will make you unconscious or sleep or, or go out of it for a while. That's what they want. That, they think that's a feature. Uh, not a bug, and that's why they'll keep running them the way that they do. And it's it's a you know doing objectives is not fun. It's not a kind of activity where you come out the other side going, oh man, I can't wait to do more of that. I mean, at least it wasn't for me, and for most of the people that I knew, it was a grueling slogathon of auditing. Objectives are are, are just a slugfest, you know. Anyway, uh, that's. There are some thoughts on your question. Maybe uh, other people have other experiences to say or other ideas about that, but um, that's, that's my answer. Samuel Doyle. I've been interested in religions for a long time, and I've always been struck by the large number of similarities between Scientology and the culty group Christian Science. In broad strokes, both believe that the world is actually spiritual and that matter is an illusion made up by the human mind. They have practitioners that counsel sick people, with the goal being for the patient to realize that the illness is all in the mind and essentially psychosomatic. Since Christian science was a fad religion decades before Scientology, is there any evidence Hubbard was influenced, cough, stole, cough, from this group? Okay, thank you for this question. And I'm going to actually totally push back on this. Absolutely not. L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, his system of uh, occult practice and belief that's disguised as an applied religious philosophy, is a a very far cry from Christian science, even if they do have a couple of basic principles that they sort of share. The most basic principle, the most basic difference, rather, that they, and it's a huge one between Christian science and Scientology, is that Christian science is a form of Christianity. It believes in Jesus and the Bible and God 
as the ultimate savior and as, as something you need to accept and believe in. L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology has nothing to do with that. A Scientology is all about personal self-empowerment. You're the God in Scientology. There is no Jesus figure. There is no God figure. It's on you. You're the God. And, if, and that's a fundamental difference of magnitude. These two things are built on entirely different pillars of, of, of belief, you could say. Um, so that's kind of important. Um, the churches engage in different activities because Christian science, I, I did a little bit of looking up on this one. Um, you know, of course, Christian science has traditional Sunday services. Scientologies are a bit of a joke and they, they hardly even, uh, run them or deal with them. Now, sin here is a kind of a big one, uh, in terms of difference because L. Ron Hubbard uses sin or what he calls overt acts to control you. He uses the concept of guilt and shame to, uh, to very much guilt blame and shame blame Scientologists into believing that they are sinful creatures and it is only by confessing those sins in writing or in a Scientology confessional session that they can be expunged or purged of their sins, but they are all written down and they, are ha- and they have to make amends and they have to do things to make up for those sins. But more importantly, they believe that it is those sins, those uh, overt acts that they've committed that have actually caused their spiritual travail and problems in their life. Uh, A person who is anywhere, overts in Scientology are blamed for anything from uh, bad eyesight or missing or misperceiving things all the way to being gay or uh, being a criminal, or being uh, anything non-optimum, it's all because of your overt acts. And, and it's not just a matter of, of, a, of a little simple uh, confession and it's all over. There's a lot more work on that. And in, sci- and in Christian science, of course, freedom from sin is only possible through Christ. The word of God is what leads us away from temptation and sinful beliefs. In Scientology, it's self-discipline and confession uh, the more, the merrier. And finally, in terms of uh, path to salvation, in Christian science, salvation encompasses your ability to awaken to the grace of God. Sin, death, and disease are removed through a spiritual understanding of God, Christ, or the Word of God. In Scientology, the goal is for you to relieve your past trauma. Your, your, your overt acts are included in that past trauma, your own sins but also what's been done to you by other living beings, not by God or angels or the devil. There is no such, you know, sort of um, supernatural beings uh, in the Scientology lore. Uh, you know, even Xenu was just another dude. There, you know, there aren't angels and demons in Scientology. There's just you. And uh, whatever the creator figure is, it has long ago been, you know, abandoned any of us, if there ever was one. Hubbard doesn't just go, he just doesn't go into it. So there is no appeal to God or grace of God or expunging of your sins via belief in God or belief in his word. That's, that's just not, you know, it has nothing to do with Scientology, but that's all about what Christian science and other branches of Christianity are about. So, 
So are there parallels? Could Hubbard have heard about Christian science? Of course he did. He did talk about uh, Mary Baker Eddy in a couple lectures, but not in any kind of like, oh yeah, we got this and this from her. Uh, it was just more Christian nonsense, if I remember right. Um, maybe he made some parallels to the concept of uh, disease as a, as a psychosomatic thing or a, a disease of the mind. And in that way, there is some similarities between Scientology and Christian science. But those concepts are, are not exclusive to Scientology and Christian science. Um, early, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, spirituality, um, and the spiritualism movement and the secret, the whole concept of karmic fate and, and, and you flow out to the universe and the universe will flow back to you. All of these kind of concepts come out of Madame Blavatsky's work and the spiritualism movement and it's melding with Christian and belief and, and even, uh, and there's, there's uh, variations of this with Jewish orthodoxy. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a religious expert on this. I'm, I'm just throwing stuff out that I've heard about over the years having to do with where occult practices come from and, uh, and, 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 the, and the sort of melting pot of ideas that occurred in the early 1900s on this were, were profound and a, and a great deal to do of influence on all the things that we are now experiencing as a spiritual revival of the you know 20th century. The, the New Age movement, all of that was inspired by these earlier belief systems. So they all kind of come out of that as a, as a whole. Um, so it's not just Christian science or Scientology, I guess is all I was trying to say there. So there you go. Michael Yoder, I recently heard Jeffrey Augustine on another channel talking about the Over the Rainbow documentary, which he didn't like. The conversation turned toward Est and Landmark, and he mentioned that LRH concocted the Est Repair Rundown. I get that this is about making sure Church of Scientology people are purged from Warner Earhart, but what do you know about this rundown, and are there other rundowns to purge people from different beliefs other than Scientology? Oh, yes. Uh, the Est Repair Rundown. Yeah, this was, a, um, this was a series of bulletins that came out in 1989, two years after Hubbard uh, dropped the body, took off, left, died, uh, started pushing up the daisies. Uh, these bulletins came out. So, you know, did L. Ron Hubbard write them? Did L. Ron Hubbard have anything to do with them? Who knows? Probably in some fashion or another. Um, there are earlier bulletins and issues about uh, resistive cases in Scientology and how uh, if you do other practices like Est or occult practices or voodoo or magic or casting spells or stuff like that, then Scientology is going to have some, you know, okay, we're going to have to sort that out a little bit before we're going to have you do a lot of Scientology because they believe in Scientology, that's, that Scientology is a, a pure, original, self-contained, self-working um, system. 
It's a workable system. It works all by itself. You don't have to bring anything else into it, and you don't want to corrupt it or taint it with any other practices or ideas or beliefs. Just Scientology all by itself. That's how you're supposed to do Scientology. And they found over the years that a lot of people would come into Scientology who did practice witchcraft or who did practice other uh, self-improvement or self-help techniques, and they want to continue bringing that into their Scientology experience. And so they have called these people resistive cases because they resist just doing the Scientology and letting the Scientology run their lives and run their their thinking. They keep bringing this other stuff in that kind of mixes up the works and it doesn't gel really well. It doesn't merge really well. You know, if you come into Scientology thinking you have to wear magnets all the time to mess with your, you know, uh, energy fields, Scientology might have a little bit of a problem with that because they're, because Hubbard never talked about using magnets to adjust your energy fields. You use auditing and your and your spiritual self is the only thing you need to adjust your energy fields, don't you see? Okay, so that all being said, there are a couple bulletins uh, having to do with auditing people who came in from EST, who did the Earhart seminar training. Um, and here, I'll just read it to you. I'll just read you a little bit of this here. So persons who have been in EST sometimes turn up in missions and orgs. It is necessary to undo, I'm reading right from the bulletin here, it is necessary to undo the case damage before the person can be processed in Scientology and get lasting case gain. So Scientology's assertion is if you come from EST, you are messed up by EST. It messed you up. Um, and here's, how, here's what they say. They say EST, which is an acronym for Earhart Seminars Training, was an offbeat activity which made a squirrel use of parts of the technologies of Dianetics and Scientology. What they did was take some early Scientology materials and alter them. They later told people they didn't know where EST came from. The real trouble with EST is that it messes up cases. For example, their squirrel processes sometimes bring about forcible exteriorization, but they don't have any tech to repair out int. Okay, so uh, if you go exterior in Scientology, if your thetan pops out of your body, you will need a particular auditing action called an interiorization rundown. And until you get it, you have a label on you called out int. Okay, that's the, that's the simple explanation. This, there's deeper explanations, but I'm not going to go into all that. We're talking about S today. Um, it also says here covert and overt uh, evaluation are rampant in EST, and some former EST cases have had implants re-stimulated by EST's psychiatrist-like use of evaluation and invalidation. Additionally, they confuse people with false data. One of the falsest data is that they make it appear that some of the basics they use are their own discoveries or developments when, in fact, these basics are alter-ised Scientology. In other words, altered Scientology. So you have this form that you're supposed to do to repair in, in an auditing session in Scientology, and you would pay for this. You have this whole form that, that is put, uh, put a person on an e-meter and run down the list and see what comes up and repair stuff as it happens. But before you can do that, before you get the repair, you first have to get an est confessional. 
This is a Scientology confessional list. I'm, uh, I'm going down to it right now. Where you are asked sharp and pointed questions about your EST experience. And here's why. EST confessional form. This is a bulletin from June 1989. Uh, it follows standard Scientology security checking process. Okay, use an e-meter, sit down in that chair. We're going to ask you some questions. And the reason why is um, this is to be done. This confessional form covers the sources of trouble and is to be done on any Scientologist formerly involved in EST. The form also includes questions designed to detect a plant. Not a, not a plant like a green plant. A plant as in somebody sent in to disrupt Scientology by the people over at EST. An agent provocateur or saboteur. That's a plant. And in Scientology, they are deathly afraid of plants coming over from EST. The, the form also includes questions designed to detect a plant. As EST's purpose is to put plants in to get tech data. So these guys actually believe that uh, if you're coming over from EST, we're going to have to sec check you to make sure you aren't a, an agent provocateur. And you will get questions like, are you intimately connected with persons of known antagonism to mental or spiritual treatment or Scientology? In this lifetime, do you have a criminal record? Have you or any member of your immediate family ever sued or threatened to sue or embarrass or attack Scientology? So here they're just checking over their sources of trouble questions. Uh, for example, other sources of trouble might be, do you believe that no person or thing can really get better? Are you here or have you ever attempted to sit in judgment on Scientology in a hearing? Are you attempting to investigate Scientology? Okay, so these are all questions that if the meter responds, ah, what's going on? What you got there? Um, are you here for some other reason than what you've said? Were you sent here to get data for someone else? Have you been sent here as a plant to get tech data? Are you still connected to EST in any way? Are you currently connected in some way to Warner Earhart or any of his organizations or associates? Okay, so they got to check all those questions. And once that's done, then you get the repair list. And then they will let you actually do regular Scientology services. So that's how that works. And there you go. Curls T. Alley. Where is Pat Broker? I've heard much talk of almost all the old crowd. What happened to them? Where they went after they left or were ousted? We've heard about the rather sad last months of Annie. And of course, in 2012, we heard about the private investigators who Miscavige had spent 25 years surveilling Pat. But aside from the information from the PIs, there seems to have been almost nothing about him for 30 years, which seems quite remarkable given the key part he played. I'm genuinely fascinated what this man has been doing for the last 30 years, how he feels, what he thinks, whether he still believes in Hubbard, the tech, and yet it seems like, perhaps because there's so little information available, no one else is. The PI said that he'd met with RVY in the late 90s, but I wonder if he's met with anyone else since he left, be it people like Jesse Prince or Sarge Fouth, those who worked with and for Hubbard, or even the most recent leavers like Marty and Mike. He'd be a fascinating interview. What are your thoughts? 
All right. Thank you for this question. Um, the truth of the matter is, as far as I can tell, Pat Broker is radio silent because uh, he wants to be radio silent. I don't think he wants to talk about Scientology. I think he put those days behind him and uh, went off and tried to make a new life for himself and, and, and for you know, his reward for helping take care of Hubbard and, and be part of that whole nonsense for all those years was to get followed around for 20 years by David Miscavige's minions who only made us think about it because they got fired because a broker, you know, might have learned that he was being followed. I mean, the whole thing is just so sordid and kind of gross that, uh, you know, I'm sure Pat Broker is just like, will you people just leave me alone? I, you know, as far as I can tell, that that was his attitude or is his attitude. Um, you know, we don't know anything really about him or what he's been up to. There is a Wikipedia page about him. And the very little information we have is that he was followed around. Uh, they followed him for the next two decades, from 1989 to 2009, uh, to Wyoming, 10 years in the Czech Republic, where he went to medical school and worked as an English teacher. And um, that's what we got. That's it. And I, you know, as far as I can tell, the guy just wants to be left alone. Uh, I think it would be uh, an interesting historical interview to interview uh, Pat Broker, find out, you know, what life was like under L. Ron Hubbard in Creston, California, or in the Bluebird mobile home driving around the country prior to settling in Creston. Um, you know, give some insight into Hubbard and Hubbard's last days, perhaps, in ways that we haven't heard from, uh, you know, otherwise. But other than that, I don't know that he has a whole lot really to contribute to the narrative than, you know, than those events. That, and again, that would be interesting. That would be very, very interesting. But it wouldn't particularly change anything as far as uh, what we're doing or how we're going about doing it. So um, so I kind of respect the guy's choice for privacy and just kind of want to move on and be left alone. And I think that's kind of why he hasn't been found or talked to by anybody. And, uh, and that's... That's what I've got for you on that. All right. So that was our show for this week. I hope you found it entertaining, informative, and educational. And I look forward to your feedback and any more questions you might have for me. Send them again to me at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or leave them in the comments section of my Q&A videos. And, of course, if you're finding the show uh, useful to you, entertaining to you, uh, please consider supporting the show. There is Patreon, PayPal, Venmo. There are links below in the description section to this video so you can show me some support and some love. You can also sign up as a member on this channel. There is a join button below here on YouTube and, uh, and a couple of easy-peasy membership levels you can sign on for. All right, that all being said, I'll see you guys soon. Bye-bye.